There's one thing that everyone in Ireland agrees on. If you want to experience the country's most dramatic scenery and get an authentic taste of traditional Irish life, you've got to spend time in the west of Ireland. If you like old Ireland where people are speaking Irish and some of them are wearing the old sweaters and the odd guys running around in a donkey and cart and it's just a real relaxed lifestyle, head out from Galway to the Inish Moor. And if it's a sunny day, it's as big a paradise in Ireland as I've ever seen. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Irish tour guide Stephen McPhillamy takes us to the rocky west coast of Ireland today on Travel with Rick Steves. He'll tell us how the West still holds on to the traditional culture of the Irish people like no place else in Ireland. And to celebrate St. Patrick's Day in true Irish fashion, you'll probably end up in a pub. Barry Foy wrote a curious little book called Field Guide to the Irish Music Session. And later in the hour, he'll walk us through some of the conventions of those traditional Irish jam sessions. The Traditions of Ireland are calling us today on Travel with Rick Steves. If you're dreaming of experiencing Ireland in the extreme, you got to go to the West Coast. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Stephen McPhillamy joins us in a moment to shepherd us through the highlights of Western Ireland. And later, we'll learn about the unwritten rules of an Irish music session from Barry Foy for the pub audience and for wannabe participants as well. Ireland's a little island, relatively speaking, five million people with a huge impact on Western civilization and especially huge impact on the United States of America. Must be 40 million Irish Americans coming out of that little island with a rich history. And if you want to visit Ireland, and if you want to visit Ireland in the extreme, I recommend going to the West Coast. There's just something about the West Coast where you find all the wonders of that Gaelic and old Irish civilization, as well as all the charms of contemporary Ireland. We're going to talk about Western Ireland right now, and I'm joined by a friend of mine from Ireland, Stephen McPhillamy. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks for being when you hear an American say that uh, you find a tourist would find Ireland in the extreme on the on the west coast, does that make any sense to you? It uh, definitely does. The west coast of Ireland is the place that's the most mystical, the most spiritual, the most rugged, the most Gaelic, the most Celtic, just really? everything. Yeah, it's a really magical place, and I think it's got a lot to do with the fact that obviously the east coast is beside Britain, and the British influence came into the east coast, not just socially and culturally, but uh, militarily, and forced everything over to the west. So there's a progressive sort of pushing the unfortunate people to the rocky, hard-to-farm land, and perhaps the rockiest and hardest-to-farm land is in the west. Yeah, we have a, a huge river going up from south to north there along in the middle of the island. It's called the Shannon. Uh-huh. Once you get beyond the Shannon on the western side of it, the land starts to gradually become quite rocky and barren. That's the most beautiful, in my opinion, but I wouldn't fancy farming it. Now, Oliver Cromwell came in 1649, and... He took all the, the Catholic farmers and landowners in the east of Ireland and he basically gave them a date and said, by this date you shall be on the other side of that river by God or you'll die. And his catchphrase was to hell or to Connacht. Go to hell or go to Connacht. Yeah, and, and C-O-N-N-A-C-H-T is the, is the name of the western province, Connacht. So, wow. so you can die or you can go to Connacht. And it seems that many chose death. Like the, obviously most didn't, but they went off to Connacht and there they just they left their rich pastures behind them. They left these great big rolling farms in the east of Ireland to go over to these fields that were just complete, literally completely made of rock and with today, little patches of grass. And you see today a lot of hard-earned little rock cottages and so on that are just desolate. It feels like the population is less today than it was 100 or 200 years ago. No, it definitely was. I mean, the west coast of Ireland was the part of Ireland most decimated by our great potato famine right. from 1845 until 1849. The people on the west survived on potatoes and it's amazing. They, they, they had no real good soil to grow their potatoes on. So they brought seaweed up from the rocks and just put it into piles. And that basically became a soil that they could actually grow potatoes they on. Had, these Irish peasants had to create their own soil to grow their own pathetic little potatoes? Yeah, and then the potatoes died. And sometimes people say, well, during the famine, if they lived on the West Coast, why didn't they just fish? But quite often they weren't allowed to fish. They, they had to have a permit from the lords or the landlords. But also... During the first year of the famine, when the potatoes failed, a lot of the fishermen panicked. The whole, from Donegal down through Connemara to down to Kerry, they panicked and they sold their nets and boats to try and get food. And then the next year, the potato crop failed again. This was uh, 1848? 1845 to 49, and 48 and 47 were about the worst years of it. And when you study the Irish famine, it's really a, a study in structural poverty. I understand, correct me, or help me on two things here. I understand there was a law that required... Irish families to divide their land among their sons so that it eventually got so small that it couldn't be a viable farm and they had to sell it, rather than giving it to the oldest son where the farm would stay together and be a viable farm? Yeah, that, that was more of a tradition than a law. That was actually our own fault. Okay. It was part of Irish or Gaelic society was 
not to give the land to the firstborn son, but to divide it equally between all the sons. So that was our own fault. And, and you know, th- and historically, that really weakened <coughs> the economy. Oh, absolutely. And it just meant that subdivision of the land just got to the extent where it just wasn't viable anymore. Maybe one of the reasons so many Irish came to the United States or emigrated, uh, and once these societies figured this out, uh, the oldest son would get the land and the younger sons would just need to move to the new land, find opportunity. Yeah, one would get the land, one would join the church, and the rest would just head for America. All right. Anyone traveling on the west of Ireland will be able to visit the National Famine Monument. It's in a town called Westport up near Connemara. So if you want one famine uh, experience as far as education and uh, sightseeing, you'd go to the one in Westport? I'd go to the one in Westport because it's called a coffin ship. It's a huge, big bronze sculpture, and it looks like a a three-masted sailing ship. And then when you get close to it, you see that the sails are all made from these eerie-looking skeletons. Now, now, as an Irishman, do you believe that during the most difficult times the Irish potato famine when countless Irish people were starving to death they were growing food for export yeah a historical fact would show that we were still a bread basket um, you see in Ireland we so it's just a way for people who own land to make more money rather than selling potatoes to local peasants sell something that is worth more and export it to England where you can get a good return on your land yeah the Irish potato famine is without doubt the greatest unsavory event between Ireland and England and our long and tumultuous relationship. Like, we didn't actually have a famine, Rick, because you can't have a famine in a country that's full of food. It was cash cropping. It was, yeah, it yeah. was selling the crops to the people with the money and starving the people that didn't have the money. Yeah, and in the language of the people of the West Coast, they didn't call it a famine. Like, if, if two people from Connemara met during the famine on the side of the road, they didn't say to each other, oh, God, this is a terrible famine we're having. First of all, they spoke Irish, and they called it Antocris Moor, uh, Tokras means hunger and more means big. So it was known to the people as the big hunger, not the, big the hunger. great famine. Now, I understand there was one little community that missed the famine, and they were out in the Blasket Islands off the west coast of Dingle because they relied on, on the sea rather than uh, potatoes. Is that true? Yeah, I've heard of, of certain other islands along the co- uh, the Blaskets in particular where um, they weren't as impacted. Uh, I think ultimately, though, they would have had family members ashore on the mainland too, and, and I think... They, they definitely they didn't just live a blissful existence no, while the rest of well, it was yeah. probably tough anyways but but they weren't completely reliant on the potatoes let's cheer things up a little bit because when you go to Ireland it's not all famine and, and, and gloom and stories like that I find that people on the west coast just have this incredible gift of gab and they speak Gaelic there's these Gael texts national parks for the preservation of the traditional culture uh, Dublin has decided hey we're going to subsidize these these traditional areas and actually keep the small farms alive and, and keep communities that speak Gaelic vibrant is this the goal? Uh, that was the goal when the, the Irish state was created uh, give rebirth to the language to focus on the areas of the west coast where it's still spoken as a first language and then hopefully that would spread to the rest of us now that plan hasn't worked and, in the last and now it's like endangered species and let's just keep these few people alive that are speaking Gaelic. Aye, but the government is now starting to think maybe that uh, that is not maybe the best way forward. Certainly give them a few tax breaks, give them some concessions, some grants, that type of thing, uh, special status. But if the Irish language is to survive, which I think it will, it's, it's going to rely on the rest of us speaking it, not just the people in three or four little areas so along the West Coast. So obviously if you're going to be engaged with the modern world and uh, the internet and all this, you need to speak uh, something other than Gaelic and people will speak English as their first language. But Gaelic, you think, will survive as a second language in Ireland? Yeah, and see, what we wanted for years was that we wanted Irish to become the first language again. And we think that's now not going to happen. But if we can keep it safe, about 30% of us can speak it fairly fluently. Those 30% who do love the language dearly. And we have this great television station now called TG Cahar, Televish Gaelic, Cahar Cahar means four. So that's over on the West Coast. And you've got all these hip young presenters. There's a guy who lives in Galway. His name is uh, Hector O'Hochagan. And Hector goes off and dances with the Chippendales in Vegas and runs with the Bulls in Pamplona and he does it all in Irish. He's a big stringy beanpole with long red hair and he's just a brilliant, all the young people love him. There's a guy from the Dingle Peninsula called Dahi O'Shea and Dahi uh, was a weatherman and he's becoming a bit more of a TV man now and uh, Dahi is, uh, has a, got a one-man campaign to save the Irish language. You know, the east coast of Ireland is not seen as mystical or magical or where the West Coast is and that is reflected in the, the vibrancy of this new television station. But it's station. actually cool with young people. I mean, a lot of teenagers, it's hard to get them excited about, you know, a lot of heavy-duty things that parents want them to appreciate. But in Ireland, I get the feeling that the uh, traditional music in the pubs and, and speaking a little Gaelic is actually cool for young people. Oh, yeah, like that part of our culture, if you're traveling on the West Coast of Ireland, singing and or music, it's not some quirky thing you find at a folk festival. It's mainstream 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling through the west coast of Ireland with Stephen McPhillamy. Hey, Stephen, when I think of these Irish towns, they have beautiful pastel sort of uh, stucco. And then I've looked at historic photographs, and there was none of that color in the old days. No, that's a development in the last, say, 30 or 40 years. We have this competition called the Tidy Towns Contest every year. It's very fierce competition. Every little village along the west coast of Ireland in particular wants to win it. And so tidy, lots of flowers, lots of yeah, pastel colours. You get, you get uh, votes for the colour of your village, uh, um, but primarily for the tidiness. Obviously, if there's a single bit of litter, you won't win. Uh, flowers is a big part of it. And if there's a derelict building on your main street, the local committee has to come together and do something with that. Maybe fix it up or paint it up or board it up and paint the boards. Mm-hmm. But it, it has to look good and it's a re- it's really good competition. And the colour especially has developed from that. And the colour now is just brilliant. And, and people go to Ireland and they think we've had that for centuries. Absolutely brilliant. Also, they think we've had music in the pubs for centuries, which has only happened since American tourists started coming. Um, like my parents growing up would never have gone to a pub for music. They would have went to a local church hall or a local person's house. There was never really music in the pubs. If you look at the old Irish movies, say based in the 20s, like let's say Angela's Ashes, for example, uh-huh. in the 30s, it's all men in the pubs drinking. Um, it's all smoke-filled rooms and they're in the back plotting revolutions or, or fighting or whatever, or just narking on about life there's nobody fiddling in the corner there's nobody playing pipes or standing up maybe there'd be the odd song or whatever but generally it was a different type really? of pub back then tourism's but, been brilliant for us but you guys have embraced that because now oh, it's yeah. driven by Irish people oh, not yeah. tourists yeah. And, and I mean that is a natural place for music of course but right. it just didn't happen traditionally now it's with us and, and, and you know I'm glad one of my favourite pubs in, in Galway has this sort of romantic painting on the wall of a crossroads and it's from the 19th century and two roads cross and that's where farm communities and so on sort of meet and they had a fire there and dancing and music and and I just felt like that was sort of a, a mystical peek into the Irish past. Yeah, you see, the politician who dominated Ireland in the 20th century was Eamon de Valera and he made a very famous speech once. It's called, it's called in Irish history, it's known as the Comely Maiden speech. He made this speech where he saw Ireland going back into a kind of a Celtic twilight. He wanted to create this mystical Celtic paradise where he said, Comely maidens would dance at the crossroads so we would all we'd all gather at the crossroads at night and we'd be living this sort of agrarian dream, all speaking Irish and doing Irish dancing and going to Mass. <laughs> and that was his vision and that didn't work. Didn't quite work Not out. fully, but... Well, there's colourful uh, pastel buildings and oh, there's yeah, a wonderful and, yeah. music in the pubs. And, you know, I, I know from my 20 years of uh, researching and, and travelling and tour guiding Ireland that the pubs scene with the music changes every couple of years. And Doolin was famous for its live pub music. Uh, of course, the Dingle Peninsula. Uh, Ennis, uh, E-N-N-I-S, was a great town for pub music in past years. Right now, where's the action if you're looking for a good pub scene, music in the pubs? Well, going up now the, to the west of coast of Ireland, up there in Donegal, there's a, a lot of people starting to, visitors especially starting to explore Donegal. Everyone has maybe been to Dingle or maybe been to Galway or Connemara. And now people are starting to move up to the northwest. There's a great vibrant young music scene going on there along the the western fringe of Donegal. Barry Four explains the workings of a traditional Irish music session in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll take your calls next for Stephen McPhillamy about visiting the west of Ireland at 877-333-RICK. You can also email us at radio at ricksteves.com. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Stephen McPhillamy from the beautiful island of Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Mary Lou's on the line from Portland, Oregon. Mary, thanks for your call. Hi. Um, I have spent a lot of time in Ireland, and especially the West, um, 
but uh, one of the things I think people should remember is the Yates International Summer School that is held in Sligo. A lot of people skip Sligo because it's kind of a very busy regional town and lots of crowds and things like that. But the Yates Summer School brings in outstanding scholars, but mostly it's a big party for two solid weeks. There's music and art and dancing, and that happens to be one of the places I remember a Sligo fiddler that I'll never forget, who is Joe O'Dowd. And um, it was wonderful. He used to come and join us all the time and play. So this is an international school that you go to for a couple weeks? Is that the idea? Yes, it's two weeks, and they have scholars from all over, um, from Trinity College Dublin, Queen's University Belfast, Emory, University College Cork, St. John's College, Oxford, um, Harvard. And it's your chance just to have sort of Irish culture boot camp. I mean, you're right in there learning all sorts of things? Well, it is. It's focused very heavily on the works of uh, the poet Yeats, William uh-huh. Butler Yeats, and that is where he used to spend his summers when he was young. And you mentioned the Sligo-style fiddling. What is that? It's a kind of fiddling that I'm not a fiddler, so I don't know, but to me it looks as if you're getting all kinds of music out of a fiddler and hardly making any effort. So as if the bow barely moves across the strings and you get 20 different notes. Yeah, Mary, did you did you notice when you're up in, like, see that area, Donegal and Sligo? Like they uh-huh. are, even Donegal has a different style of fiddling. It's, it's really remarkable how each area can have its own style because all the young people are pretty much traditionally learning from the one teacher you see over the years. But the Donegal style is very kind of electrifying. And how were the parties at the uh, in Sligo? Oh, they were grand. Yeah. <laughs> Every evening, you'd have two lectures a day and then a seminar in the afternoon, and there'd be tours going on at the same time in the afternoons. But then in the evening, you'd always finish with a social time, yeah. and usually held in a private club, so you didn't have early closing. Oh God! And Sligo, Sligo, you're right, is a part of the west of Ireland that's usually overlooked by visitors and even ourselves, that we don't really go there that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from the WB8 summer school, would you have any other recommendations there? Did you find anywhere else when you were exploring the coastline? Well, there are lots of ancient ruins that are there in terms of the um, early dolmens. That's and true, yeah, and the megalithic tombs. Maybe, maybe you might have made it up to Queen Maeve's tombs. Yes, oh, oh yeah. absolutely, climbed up and did not bring a rock down. Yeah. Oh, did <laughs> yeah. you? And, and, and Sligo is also famous for its seaweed baths. A lot of people like to stop off there and have a big What's the seaweed hot, bath? It's just a, a big hot porcelain bathtub full of hot seawater. They you know, heat up the seaweed. It's water. very hot, you know, and, and they fill it with seaweed and whatever kind of gel comes out of the seaweed, you know, you just sort of, first of all, you go into a, a big kind of, a, like a coffin-shaped box and you sit in there and you pull this lever and you just get immersed in steam to open your pores. Then you jump into the seaweed bath and you just sort of flagellate yourself with seaweed and uh, then you pull this lever and a huge big thing opens up in the roof with freezing cold spring water just falls right on top of you and it, you just feel refreshed and buzzing after it. But it's a Sligo thing. That's a Sligo thing. I very, very that. popular. Wow, there's some reasons to 15 go to Sligo. euros a bath. 15 euros a bath. Uh, and you come out of there feeling five years younger. Revitalized, yeah. <laughs> Mary Lou, thanks for your call. You're welcome. You know, a lot of people, when they're thinking about the west coast of Ireland, they just assume they'd fly into Dublin. But really, Shannon Airport is just as big as Dublin Airport, isn't it? And Aye. it's on the west. Shannon is an international airport. You can definitely get flights to there from the United States. Uh, interestingly, at the minute, Shannon is where... Uh, American troops stop going off to uh, Germany and also off to Iraq. So probably hundreds of thousands will have stopped in Shannon on their way as servicemen. We have a, a permanent presence of protesters outside of about 200. They're protesting because we're supposed to be a neutral country. And our, our government says, well, uh, let's not make a big deal of this. The Americans, we're, we're not infringing our neutrality by allowing the Americans to refuel there. But I had to fly from Shannon recently. I went into the pub at the uh, airport. There's like 5,000 U.S. military patches all over the back of the bar. And everywhere you look, people are in desert camouflage fatigues. So, um, so this is really quite a busy, it's a busy re- a refueling yeah, it's a, stop for yeah, the Americans. Yeah, and it's a big east. airport. And uh, if you're not in the military, you can still stop there efficiently and use that as a jumping off point. I've rented cars a number of times from Shannon, and within an hour you're out into this Irish wonder of the West Coast. Yeah, and Shannon used to be the stop-off between Moscow and Havana, and that's where Che Guevara, it's the only place in Ireland he jumped off. He jumped off and had an Irish coffee at Shannon Airport, because it's where Irish coffees were invented. Went into a pub and heard some rebel songs and was inspired. He was only there for a few hours, but yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, the, the west coast of Ireland, transport, 
links there uh, the train if any of your people are going to be going on train it's not the greatest connections along the west coast we don't have a north to south corridor linking all the different cities that's gone and we're trying to bring that back. Well, that's true. Well, it's a sparsely populated island, so they wouldn't have the train system of the Netherlands or something like this. But you do have trains that go in and out of Dublin. If you want to connect any points on the West Coast, you're much wiser to go by bus, I would think. Uh, yeah, that's true, I think, because now we've, for the first time, two cities in Ireland are linked by a motorway completely, Galway in the west and Dublin in the east. So now you can drive across on this uh, brilliant big You got a motorway? Highway. You got a freeway in Ireland now? Yeah, it goes right oh. across to the island. Has, now, was that paid for by European Union money? In part? Um, I would imagine primarily paid for by European Union money, but these days we're starting to pay for quite a bit ourselves, although in future we'll probably have to go back to the We European should remind money. people that when a country joins the European Union, they're either a net giver or a net receiver. And when Ireland joined up, they were one of the poor countries in Europe, net receiver. I see the European uh, flag symbol all over Ireland for different projects that involved European money. Today, Ireland is probably above the median in Europe and therefore a net giver. We are a net giver. And... Also, our western shoreline or western coast is regarded as a as a disadvantaged European region, so it gets extra funding from the European government in Brussels. So European is just investing in its infrastructure across the board for the economic good of everybody in that big free trade zone of 400 million people. Yeah, Ireland as a whole is seen now as a, as a well, self-sufficient country, but the western part of Ireland is seen as, as not being a self-sufficient area, so it needs to get more funds. Gets back to go to hell or go to Connaught, right? Yeah. It's the rough spot, and today they're not uh, condemning people to there, but they're subsidizing the ec- economic life over there. We were talking about transportation. I think there's a fascinating corner of Ireland, which is just drenched in transportation and communication innovation. The far southwest tip of Ireland is the touristy and famous Ring of Kerry. Very beautiful, but so crowded that all the tour buses leave in a convoy in the morning going in one direction so they don't have to cross each other in different directions. That's right. They all head out and go around it uh, anti-clockwise. So anti-clockwise, and uh, in order not to, to go against the bus traffic. Yeah, so every morning the, the convoy and the hordes would, will leave Killarney generally and head off around the peninsula go out around to Valencia. And it's counterclockwise? They're going around counterclockwise. Okay, and if you were a tourist in a rental car going clockwise around that peninsula, it would be less comfortable. Well, if you're a big bus driver with a group of German tourists on board and you're going the wrong way, that's when the problem arises out there on the tip of the peninsula. Two buses come head to head. I've often had a standoff with German bus drivers out there. Now, go the wrong now way. I was mentioning this southwest far extreme tip of Ireland is historic in so many ways. I mean, they say that the tetrapods were there. I mean, they actually claim the first fish slithered out of water there 380 million years ago, and tetrapods then evolved. Do you know anything about that? Oh, I've been down there many times, but I've, I've seen those fossils on, on the rock yeah. a few times, and it's a very interesting tale that, that we have that connection with the ancient part of humanity, maybe. And it's evocative to think that right there also, you have during the darkest steps of the Dark Ages, monastic scribes keeping literate life alive in Europe. I mean, in the year 800, when Charlemagne ruled Europe, he imported monks from this corner of Ireland to be his scribes, his educated people. Uh, There's a very famous monastic site out there called Skellig Michael, and that's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, so it's given the same status as some of the great treasures of, of the world. And, and this is a barren, like a teepee of a rock. Oh, God, yeah. of nowhere. And I mean, that was for the Green Berets of monasticism. I mean, that was for the real special troops to go out there. In the east, the monks moved to the west because they wanted solitude, and then others followed them, and these guys didn't have enough solitude, and, and they didn't know that America existed then, obviously, so they went out to Skellig Michael and lived a real austere barren spiritual life. And it, that would be rugged just, for a seagull, that rock out in the middle of the Yeah, and it's, and it's very dangerous. And visitors can go out there on a ferry, but they do need to be careful once out there. And if you were sitting on that rock just in the middle of the 19th century, you would find boats coming from America that would toss out the news in a little capsule, I understand. And Reuters News Service would go out there do you remember that? I think that you were saying once to me that the story is that's how they would get the scoop. Young boys had to go out and pick up with a net, pick up the capsule that had the news. And so I understand that's where we got that term, get a scoop, the scoop yeah, from and it, a journalist's point of view. In fact, I think that's how Europe learned about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865, was one of these Reuters capsules that one of the boys went out in a boat and scooped it up, and from there it would be sent across Europe. The first cables were laid across the Atlantic from this point here to Newfoundland, Newfoundland. in Canada. And I think Marconi set up a, a radio beacon here to make the first transmissions Te- to, to the United States. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Stephen McPhillamy, who joins us from Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Gary's on the line in Edgerton, Kansas. Gary, thanks for your call. 
Hi, how you doing? Good. I'm trying to find out. I'm trying to surprise my wife on a trip to Ireland that she's always wanted to do, our 39th anniversary coming up, and just wondered if you had any suggestions. We'd like to try to do it in a week. We're kind of limited on vacation time. And so any uh, advice would be greatly appreciated. Well, Gary, I think if you were to fly into Dublin, and it's now so easy to get across over to the West in, in a matter of two or three hours. Would you hire a car, do you think, or would you be comfortable driving? Oh, that's fine, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, if you were comfortable driving, pick up a car at Dublin Airport. I, w- I would personally go into Dublin for a couple of nights or even a night because I, I really love it, uh, It's our capital city. But if you hired a car at the airport, you can be straight across, avoid all the Dublin traffic, and you can be over in the West of Ireland that afternoon within a few hours. Then I would go off and explore Connemara, uh, maybe ba- maybe maybe base yourself in Galway for a few nights. Get a nice bed and breakfast there in the city centre. Connemara is the most rugged, wonderful part of the island. Head up and explore the valleys there and the lakes, and come down by Clifton. Uh, come back and maybe take a day trip out to the Aran Islands. If you like old Ireland, where people are speaking Irish and some of them are wearing the old sweaters and the odd guys running around in a donkey and cart, and it's just a real relaxed lifestyle. Head out from Galway to a place called Inishmore. It's full of history. Uh, full of culture, and if it's a sunny day, it, it's as big a paradise in Ireland as I've ever seen. Um, you'd come back into Galway then, maybe drive down the west coast, maybe stay in Doolin for a night, which is a very, very musical little village, and you could see the cliffs of Moher then. Is that a good place to maybe take a little day hike? You could hike for a day there, but most people probably would be, say, half a day, a few hours along. Right. The, it's very spectacular. Cliffs are 750 feet tall, and then you'd cross over the River Shannon, Take a ferry across the Shannon with your car and then head down under the Dingle Peninsula. I can't think of a better place to spend three or four days with your wife on your 39th anniversary. Now, Gary, you've got to be careful when you say you want to do Ireland in a week. Um, if you want a relaxing, romantic, if you want your marriage to continue, you might want to try not to do it in a week, okay? Um, you get a couple days in Dublin, the great capital. Get that car. In two or three hours, you're on the West Coast. As Stephen said, the area, uh, I think, northwest of Galloway is a charming area, Connemara. Connemara, yeah. And then you could take the boat out to Erin Islands, and that is really Ireland. That's the rugged, small-town, uh, traditional Ireland uh, in, in its extreme, and that would really be a week right there. If you had another four days, I think in a sane temple, you could head down to the southwest coast and do Dingle and stop by the Cliffs of Moher on the way. Yeah. The Cliffs of Moher are like on the cover of every guidebook. I mean, it's the most dramatic, what do you say, 700 feet drop yeah. in these yeah. cliffs that go right into the Atlantic. So good luck on your uh, trip, Gary, and happy anniversary. All right. Well, I really appreciate the advice. And Gary, if, if you don't mind, if I can give you three lines of a little song that might inspire you to go to the west coast. It's called A Song for Ireland. It goes, um, Living on your western shore, I saw summer sunsets, I asked for more. I stood by your Atlantic sea, and I sang a song for Ireland. Oh, thank you. No worries, sir. Sing that to your travel partner. <laughs> okay. Good luck, Gary. Thank you much. And Jake's on the phone in Bend, Oregon. Jake, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. It's a pleasure to speak to both of you. Now, did I see Stephen on one of your television shows about Ireland? You sure did. Stephen's I worked with me for years. He's my man in Ireland. I, I couldn't do Ireland without good friends over there to help out. He is an encyclopedia of Irish information, for sure. Oh, God. Uh, one comment that I wanted to make, I had the pleasure of spending uh, two weeks on mainly the west coast of Ireland in October. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make is that they spend so much time rushing from site to site, you know, with a checklist of landmarks that they have to see and for me the real charm of the west coast of ireland was just kind of taking it slow and talking to people in the towns and there are so many sort of hidden sites that made the trip for me really really personal i think a lot of people do make that mistake for sure yeah i think that's true you know, I, I think the inclination is for us to do our studying in advance and pack our trip with famous sites. And if all you do are, are a model of efficiency and go from famous site to famous site, you've cut out the magic and the charm of Ireland. I mean, its sites are great, but it's the people in those moments when you take a little walk or have, yeah. a, have a visit to a cafe or a pub or, or linger after breakfast with the woman who runs your bed and breakfast. Yeah. Exactly. I think the mistake I make too sometimes when I come on American radio here is that because I'm patriotic, I want you guys to see everything in Ireland. And it's just too much, and I, I'm guilty of that, so I should probably yeah, take a chill pill and slow down too. <laughs> it seems to be, as Stephen mentioned earlier, you know, the, uh, the spiritual and mystical and magical quality of the West Coast, and those are things that you feel in places, 
you know, when you're on a hike up in the, uh, is it the Ten Pins, the Ten Bends? That, Over in Connemara. That, yeah. Right, right. Um, it is something that almost needs to be absorbed. And it seems like Ireland is so perfect for those little off-the-beaten-path places. Definitely, yeah. And I think anyone who's seeking that in life, anyone who just wants to take a break to slow down, maybe ponder a few things and just recharge the batteries and come back to life with a new zest, then the west coast of Ireland is definitely a prime spot for that. And Jake, Ireland in general is one place where people like me and probably you get this sensation that we're understanding a foreign language. (laughs) It is interesting when you find yourself also in a pub. The pub can be crowded and all of a sudden you notice that no one is speaking English. Yeah, that's true, yeah. A lot of Americans can be oblivious to that as we travel through Ireland. I step into a shop and the people there are chatting away in Gaelic and they turn to me without missing a beat and talk to me in English. And then when I leave, they slip back into their Irish. And I might have not even known that they really speak Irish first and English second. Right. It's a beautiful musical language, too. I think it kind of contributes to that whole feeling of the kind of mystical quality of Ireland. You know, with all the recent wealth in Ireland in the last 10 or 12 years... Do you see that in any way as threatening the preservation of traditional Irish culture? I think it did threaten it, definitely. But remember now, of course, that wealth that we had for a decade, the Celtic Tiger, is now definitely gone. And I think good riddance to it. I mean, it was good while it lasted, but it's gone now. We're back to basics. We're back to where we were. Ireland probably, ironically, is best when we're poor. Singing rebel songs in the pubs. Yeah, it's when we have most fun. It's when we have most camaraderie together. And it's, we, maybe for 10 years they were slightly forgot our core principles and now they're back with us. I think they're starting to come back. You know, I've heard the same comments from people from Iceland who've had an even tougher time, I think, than Ireland with this economic situation. Uh, and, and they say there's a, what do you call it, a, a silver lining in this economic cloud. Yeah, and they really get back to their basics yeah. and their culture gets stronger yeah. when they have to have that camaraderie. Yeah, so just to answer your question, I think it definitely did threaten our principles and our culture, but I think our culture is strong enough to survive any challenge. Ireland's one of those places that the more you visit, the more you realize you can never exhaust it of what it has to offer. You can go back and back all your life. It's a magical place, for certain. All right. Hey, Jake, thanks for your um, thoughtful comments here. Thanks for your call, Jake. Thank you both. See you later. Bye-bye. And just talking with Stephen here reminds me that Ireland is is a magical place that you could spend a long, long time exploring. Take it slow. Get to know the people. Celebrate a beautiful culture. Stephen McPhillamy, any final words for us before we carry on with our dreams of visiting Ireland? Well, I'd, I just would hope that anyone who's coming over to Ireland, when most of the people are coming into Dublin and then they do Dublin and they say, that's it, I've done Ireland. You know, just obviously, they'll know there's great things out there. The West Coast, the North Coast, everywhere. Just, just get out there into the countryside, mix with the locals. And as we say in Ireland, there are no such thing as strangers, just friends we've not yet met. And I think people will really see that. My experience in Ireland makes that very true. No strangers, just friends we've yet to meet. Stephen McPhillamy from Ireland, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Gorav Mahagot, is that right? Yeah, Gorav Mahagot. That means thank you. And Slancha. Slancha. Best wishes and health to you. Cheers. Stood by your Atlantic sea And sang a song for Ireland Up next, Barry Foy takes us to the pub for a field guide to the Irish music session. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's travel with Rick Steves. Barry Foy is joining us, and Barry's written a book called The Field Guide to the Irish Music Session. Barry, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. There's something, uh, to me, so pretty about walking up to the door of a pub some evening, and just before the door opens, you hear that music kind of yeah. but sneaking out. In just as many cases, I've gone to a pub and gone home, and the beer was good and the music was okay, but it, it, the magic wasn't there. And there's something about the session. Do you know what I mean? It's like fishing. Sometimes the session kindles. And other times, the session just doesn't quite have it. Oh, absolutely. And if you have to look at it from a statistical point of view, you'd have to say most sessions are probably mediocre to poor. Right. But, you know, we keep going because we're hoping for the good one. And the good one can be so good that uh, it kind of blots out all the rest out of our memory. I've had six or eight great sessions probably in 20 years of traveling in Ireland. I mean, I don't spend every night at the pubs. But when that, it's, it's well worth it because when you hit a session right, it's like the best concert of your life. Well, let's talk about a session here. You've written a book called The Field Guide to the Irish Music Session. First of all, what is a session? 
All right, sessions. Simplest way to define a session is just to say it's Irish musicians coming together to play traditional Irish music. That's all it is. And that can be in a kitchen or a pub or it can be under a tree in a park or anywhere else. Any tourist going to Ireland, Barry, is looking for some trad, traditional music in the pub, generally in the pubs. Right. And there's the Cayley. Now, how is a Cayley different from a session? A Cayley is specifically for dancing. Okay. And the musicians propel the dancing. Usually there's a dance floor, and the musicians may even be up on a stage or something like that, but it's really all about dancing, social dancing. And a session is about a group, a circle of musicians. A session is a circle of musicians, large or small. There may be some people who have chosen to clear out some space in the corner and dance there, but a session consists of many sets of tunes that are chosen for various reasons and in various ways and... Okay, so that's the building blocks of a session. Those what, are the what is building a, blocks of a what's session. A set, what's, what's a series of tunes? How does that get structured? Well, you first you have to talk about the types of tunes, principally reels, jigs, and hornpipes. Those are the three main ones. Then there's a few others like slip jigs and polkas. But uh, the set we're talking about that's the building block of the session is a, a string of two to who knows how many of a, one particular type of tune, one after the other. Now, how do they determine, is this preset, like do they have a playlist before they go down to the pub and they say, we're going to do these three and then we're going to do those three? No, if you find uh, that sort of situation, it's not going to have the feel that a good session has. It's not going to take a life of its own. Yeah, that means somebody's taken too heavy a hand in organizing a thing for you. And that really defeats the whole purpose of a session, I suppose. It takes the the air out of the magic. That's not what it's about. You know, if you're going to some place that's putting on a folklore show. That's different, but there's no magic But that's not what we're talking about here. Now, you you wrote in your book that... uh, to, to explain the logic of a session is almost defeats the purpose. I had to kind of fire a shot across the bow right at the beginning of the book and say, look, I know I'm going to get looked at askance by people in Ireland or in hotbeds of Irish music for even bringing up the idea of writing about a session, writing a book about a session. And I was trying to talk to those people who aren't at the epicenters of Irish music and give them some idea what they might see. All right, I'm talking to Barry Foy. His new book is Field Guide to the Irish Music Session. Carrie's on the line in Tallahassee, Florida. Carrie, thanks for your call. Hello, how are you, Rick? I'm doing well. That's a nice Irish name. Go to County Kerry and get a free drink, I suppose. Well, you know, my family is actually not from County Kerry, but my parents like that particular song. So. All right, do you have a comment or a question for Barry? Well, uh, one of my experiences with sessions is that the people who really listen uh, give a gift to the musicians, because uh, I've seen that in pubs there's 67 different things going on, many conversations and so forth. A lot of people are not listening to the music, and that's fine. The musicians are still playing, but um, being a good listener is a good quality to bring if you go to a session. Yeah, that's a really important point. And, uh, I mean, I've got to say a couple of things about that. First of all, if everybody in the pub did suddenly fall quietly and, and listen, uh, the session in some ways might fall apart. It just that's wouldn't true. have that sort Isn't of that feeling. Isn't that interesting? You know? <laughs> so there's sort of a, it's sort of a balance. If nobody's listening, that's a drag. But if everybody's listening, that's a drag, too. Yeah, there's a, I'm a musician myself, and to sit and play a session, you want to feel you have this kind of cocoon of sound around you, not so much that's overwhelming or deafening, you know, there's one exception. That is when somebody in the group sings a song. The lament. And it is customary, if possible, for people to quiet down even the punters, which is the word for the listeners, the non-musicians in the house. When somebody sings a song, the musicians do their best to shush them, and everybody should give them a little leeway there. But that's not a shanty or whatever, a, a goofy song. That's a serious lament, right? Well, it could be any number of songs. These days, it could be anything. You know, it could be you too. But uh, right. yeah, I'm, you know, I specifically mean when somebody's singing an actual traditional song and especially if it's an unaccompanied traditional so, song. I mean, but tell me about the lament. It's a cappella normally, right? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by a lament. You may be talking about a, what's called a slow air. Well, a slow air is, yeah. is a song played on an instrument. But the traditional songs of Ireland, you know, traditionally speaking, singing is unaccompanied, and there's no harmonies or anything like that, so we're talking about the real hardcore okay. tradition. Kerry, do you have any uh, experiences with a, a session that really strikes that chord with you or 
Uh, well, uh, some of the ones I've enjoyed the most have actually been singing sessions rather than tune sessions, and I don't know if you get into that in your book, Barry. Well, not singing sessions as such, but you bring up an important point. Um, you got to know what to call these bits of music when you go to Ireland, and that you should true. know that a song is sung and a tune is played. And Carrie got it right there. She, she returned, got it exactly she right. Returned she returned to a tune as a tune. <laughs> yeah, she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> but if you say, uh, could you play that song again on the fiddle? That's not going to happen because a song is sung. So right but, away, that musician kind of probably doesn't roll his eyes in your face, but inside he's doing that. Oh, he is. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends uh, how, how patient he is. But, you know, there, there is such a thing, as Carrie says, as a singing session. Now, a singing session is going to be in a town that has, obviously, a good number of proper singers because it's a session where people get together just to hear each other sing, and that'll kind of go around the circle. And that's different from the regular instrumental session that's punctuated at times by some singing. Carrie, thanks for your call. You're welcome. Barry, is there a... To me, it's very interesting because I'm a little bit of a musician, and I see these musicians communicating with each other as they play as if they're figuring out what's going to be next, who's going to take the lead. Is there some sort of orthodoxy in how a set is structured? How are they communicating? How do they string these tunes together? Orthodoxy would be a little too strict a word, but there's definitely uh, customary ways of doing things. Do they get eye contact, and is it a spontaneous thing, or is there uh, one guy who's the dictator? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've covered all these things in my book in a kind of a facetious way, and the reason I did it in a facetious way is because I figured if it weren't funny enough, people wouldn't take it seriously enough. So I tried to... Uh, here's, here's a paragraph here. Might give you some idea. Determining who gets to uncork the next tune is simple enough. That privilege falls to the musician who can present the most convincing case for his candidate in the shortest amount of time. His persuasiveness may rely on the fact that he's louder, older, bigger, or more respected, or that he has come up with a more appealing choice than anyone else. Or it may be that he just happened to beat the rest to the punch. Once a tune has been played as many times as local custom or the mood of the gathering mandates, and the playing has come around to the last part of the tune's last go-round, it's time to spring into action and set up the next one. This happens in one of the following ways. Now I go into these. Uh, one, The first is that tradition dictates that a particular tune follows another particular tune. They're always played together. The second way is that a musician will simply shout out the name of a, of a candidate he has in mind, and most of the time, everybody will go along with it. Then in a third way, uh, just as the last tune winds to a close, nobody's called out any other name. There's no special one to go after, but someone will just start a new one. I've never heard him, like when you have a party at your house and somebody says, okay, let's play Barbara Ann, you know, and everybody goes, no, I don't like that one. Let's play, uh, you know, Satisfaction. Uh, <laughs> well, it's not like a yelling contest. With a, with a session, you got the musicians and you got eye contact and then they don't miss a beat. And we they go are talking about dance. exquisitely subtle gestures and subtle. indications okay. here. Somebody might give a little whoop. Uh, uh, one common yeah. one, which you can watch for if you're a tourist over there, is look for somebody's knee rising. Ah. You see somebody's knee come up. <laughs> now, do they miss a beat between songs or no. does it, it go straight through? Straight in. And, straight in. You so know, so part I, of being a traditional Irish musician is learning yeah. to make those changes absolutely smooth. Now, they don't miss a beat, and there's not a lot of dynamic contrast in this traditional no, music. No, this is not a music of, of dynamics. In, in a way, when it comes to Irish music, it's almost like the instruments have an on-off switch rather than a, <laughs> than a loud or soft. You yeah. Know? The, so that's the, why there's no pianos. Piano forte means loud, soft, right? Or soft, yeah, well, there is. There, the <laughs> piano figures in there, not in sessions, of course, or right. well, sometimes. But uh, we don't want to hear that forte end. No. We just want that piano. Question I've always had. You, you see these guys, everybody's drinking, having a great time, and they're nursing a beer, too. Do they get drunk or do they, do they, do they maintain just a steady buzz where they're feeling it or is it better for them to have a, a Coca-Cola or something? I see. Well, you know, it depends. If you're kind of a cheap date and a lightweight drinker like me, then the Coca-Cola is better if you want to be playing they're, well. They're playing the for several the... hours, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, many of them are drinking for several hours and drinking steady and that's been the... Uh, the downfall of many of an Irish okay, musician. Okay, so it, too. <laughs> it can be the downfall of an Irish musician. But I mean, uh, not the majority by any means. No, because you know? I, I always feel like they, they handle it pretty well, considering they're, they're doing oh, this. Oh, absolutely. Some of the best Irish music you have ever heard has been by some pretty... Pretty looped guys. Pretty looped guys, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Barry Foy. Barry's written a guide designed to help us better appreciate the Irish traditional music pub scene by understanding what a session is. His book is called Field Guide to the Irish Music Session. 
Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Debbie's on the phone in Seattle. Debbie, thanks for your call. Hi. Hi, Barry and Rick. Hi. Hello Hi. there. Um, well, my family's from Killarney, and so I go and visit them off and on. And I know the last time I visited them, it was difficult for us to find some traditional music. And it almost seems like it's a dying art form. So do you think the younger kids are forsaking the old music and instruments in favor of the newer forms of music? Because it just seems harder and harder to find. Well, you know, every time I've gotten to thinking that over the last several years, um, something shows me that it's not true and that there's more people playing this music than ever, and especially young people. It's pretty amazing. And they're playing with a degree of proficiency that's stunning. I mean... You know, Debbie, it's interesting because, yeah, when I go to Ireland, traditional music seems about as, I mean, it's it's sort of related more to square dancing and that kind of stuff here, but it's, it has a, in Ireland, it has a real genuine todayness about it, mm-hmm. and uh, there, there's a enthusiasm that way. Barry, you can shine some light on this, but it, it the hot scenes migrate from town to town. Doolin used to be, you know, just everybody go to Doolin to hear the music, a tiny little town on the West Coast. Ennis, very good, Dingle. Where do you think the meccas are right now, Barry? In Kerry, Killarney's still a pretty strong town. There's still sessions there, but these scenes are a little transitory sometimes, especially in towns that are not highly touristed. Of course, Killarney is highly touristed. Mm-hmm. You know, a session will come and go. Maybe the strongest musician sort of was the backbone of the session for years, and then he moves to another town. One thing to remember is Ireland is an island of a tight-knit community, and you can have a guy on national television in Dublin one day, and the next night you can go to a little town in the west of Ireland and see him playing in a pub to 20 people. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's just, I, this guy's like a, a rock star in the Irish trad scene, yeah. and here he is in some small-town pub having a blast. You know, what's changing is the pubs themselves. The Irish pub is, is really being transformed, and, in fact, a lot of the pubs in the countryside are closing down for various reasons. It's a little early to ring the death knell for, for sessions. What's well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie, thanks for your call. Thank and you. good luck in finding some uh, lively and happening trad before it. I hope it's not fading away. Barry, what's the... I always think of men in a in a music session, and I think of women singing the, the sad a cappella songs. Uh, are women welcome in a circle if they're good instrumentalists? Oh, my God, yeah. There's no... Uh, there's, there's never no been any distinguishing... Uh, any any musician who could come in and acquit themselves uh, honorably is, is more than welcome. And, more than welcome. And what are the main instruments, the, the core instruments in a session? The fiddle, the wooden flute, black wooden flute, although sometimes you see a silver metal flute, uh, the tin whistle, the illin pipes, which are the, the kind like of bagpipes played bag sitting pipes, down, yeah. pumped with the elbow rather than blown, four-string banjo, very common, and uh, a host of, now you have a host so, of, well, so of course, the, the button accordion, well, button accordion. the button accordion, two-row button accordion, right. and the concertina, which is the little hexagonal squeeze box you oh, know, yeah, with the right. pleats on it. Now, of course, we've got many, many accompaniment instruments from guitars to actual variations on, on the Greek bouzouki, which came over in the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and pub- even in New York, you'll find, uh, you'll find a piano at a session sometimes. Okay. Do the pubs pay the musicians for these sessions? Oh, well, it varies. The pub session, the paid pub session, is an established thing now that really just kind of started up in the 60s. Is that a good thing or a bad um, thing? Oh, I'm not going to get involved. You but, know, okay, for, so for a tourist so, musician, for somebody who's just traveling over there, it's a good thing because they know there'll always be something going on at a certain time. You well, know? that's true. But I'm talking, you just stumble onto a great little session in, in Ennis. Are those musicians just playing for beer? or It varies. Okay. It varies. They may just a, be paying for beer. Absolutely. And in a prominent pub, uh, even if there is somebody there, there may be one or two being paid and the rest are just there. You know? What's the most common gaffe an American tourist could make that they'd want to be careful of? A non-musician? Yeah. <laughs> Those are, there are different gaffes. You know, there's the well, musician's gaffes and then the gaffes. listener's okay, gaffes. Let's just say you're, uh, well, you o- can, you're over-enthusiastic here. Yeah, you me. can come over and uh, interrupt people while they're playing. You could try to talk to them while they're playing. That's uh, nasty. Um, you can ask them to play Danny Boy. Huh. That's, uh, That's pretty a nasty. hanging offense, practically. Although sometimes they'll humor you, especially uh, if you offer to buy a round of... Of beers for the table. You know, you buy know. a round of beers is probably your great... Uh, the great lubricator. Lubricator, yeah. that's right. You can get away with lots of that. <laughs> What's the slang for a great session? Well, you know, a, a session's just called a session, but the Irish have a word crack. You know, you can spell it C-R-A-C-K or C-R-A-I-C, 
And it's a kind of a nebulous term that refers to all the elements of a fun time. Uh, I thought crack was like good conversation. It's conversation. Because people are saying great crack tonight, wasn't there? Yeah, uh, but you know... But the uh, conversation can be musical, huh? Absolutely. So the conversation or the music can contribute to the ambiance of a great, a magical evening in a pub. And people say, oh, last night was, was great crack last night, you know. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Barry Foy in Barry's books called Field Guide to the Irish Music Session. Barry's website is frogchartpress.com. We'll have that on our website at ricksteves.com in the radio corner. Okay, Barry, you've probably been to countless sessions. If you had the opportunity to do a new edition of your book with a perfect color photograph of the best moment that comes to mind in a session, what would be in that photograph? Well, you know, maybe it would only be the instruments and the feet. I don't want to see any faces. And that's because... uh, when you're really talking about the perfect session, if such a thing exists, it's really not about the individual personalities, not about their nationality. It's not about whether one of them came from Tokyo and the other came from Ennis. It's more about this kind of blending that takes place where suddenly everything is kind of subsumed into this beautiful swinging whole mass of music, you know, that lifts you up and rolls along and seems unstoppable. It's got to seem unstoppable. There's something about it that says... This was here before any of us were here, and it'll be here forever after. Instruments, feet, and the churning cauldron of <laughs> Irish traditional music that takes on a life of its own. And a bunch of cell phones sitting on the table in front, too, right? Next oh, to the, please. Right next All to the right. beers, you know. Barry Foy, author of Field Guide to the Irish Music Session. Thanks a lot for giving us an insight in this very important aspect of Irish culture. Thanks for having me. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, assisted by Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of our website, including travel advice for day trips from Dublin. And Stephen tells us about a traditional Irish word they say on public TV in Ireland, but which we can't really mention on the air in America. That, along with program archives and a link to send us your travel haiku, are in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And listen again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Britain, Ireland, and beyond, one small group at a time. For example, just for Britain and Ireland, you can choose from four exciting itineraries. For a free tour catalog and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, Visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.